This is episode 209 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. Unlock bonus episodes and exclusive history content at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. I really love the way that Shakespeare uses these mythologies and lore to both exalt Elizabeth and support her and yet still poke a little bit of fun at her at the same time. I don't think anybody's ever done it better than Shakespeare did. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. William Shakespeare uses the word moon over 160 times in his works, talking about the shape of the moon, the horns of the moon, and even traits of the moon, like moonshine or moonbeam. For Shakespeare's lifetime, the moon held almost as prominent a place in life as the sun, with people planning their lives around the phases of the moon. Described using a variety of names, including popular feminine names like Lucina, Diana, and Cynthia, the moon was personified with attributes like good manners while being held responsible for bad things like aging or unpleasant weather. For early modern England, it was best to consult the location of the moon to determine the best time to do everything from bringing in the harvest to getting a haircut. Given the prominence of the moon and the pervasiveness of its place in the culture, understanding how it works and its attributes becomes essential to understanding plays like A Midsummer Night's Dream, which mentions the word moon close to 40 times and employs the moon along with madness as a constant theme of the story. Our guest this week, Rachel Onstad, writes about the place of the moon in the culture and mindset of 16th century England in her illustrated handbook and encyclopedia for A Midsummer Night's Dream. Today, she joins us to explore the history and place of the moon and why it held such an important role in Shakespeare's lifetime. Rachel Onstad is the author and illustrator of A Midsummer Night's Dream Illustrated Handbook and Encyclopedia and is currently working on a Twelfth Night or What You Will Illustrated Handbook and Encyclopedia. She's the artistic director of the Rose City Shakespeare Company and the producer of the Twelfth Night podcast by Rose City Shakespeare Company. You can join her group on Facebook, Shakespeare's World and Words, or There Will Be Body. She has an MFA in technical theater and is a retired architect and set designer. Hello, Rachel. Welcome to the show. Hello, Cassidy. Shakespeare uses the imagery of the moon a great deal in A Midsummer Night's Dream, but Rachel, are the images he selected specifically a nod to Elizabeth I? Many of them are, and several of them aren't. Of course, when he's using the moon as a butt joke, we can guess that he probably was not referring to Queen Elizabeth. But when he's talking about Hippolyta, who would have been the priestess of the moon in Amazonian culture, and when he's talking about Titania, who comes from the Roman moon goddess Diana and gets called Gloriana and everything else, then he is definitely evoking Queen Elizabeth. Spencer's poem that he never finished, but still, you know, had a huge impact on the culture. So all of you out there who haven't finished a project, don't despair. 
<laughs> you could change literature forever in spite of that. But he wrote The Fairy Queen, and in it, he depicts Elizabeth as Belphoebe. And Phoebe is the goddess of the moon, and Belle means beautiful. And also, I'm sorry, my Spencer fans, he may or may not refer to Titania specifically in there. But all of that built on what was called the cult of Astraea, which was a sort of combination of iconography and poetry and off times in pageants where Queen Elizabeth would be depicted as the goddess of the moon. And we can understand why this is because the goddess of the moon was famously a virgin and kept a lot of women around her in her own little court. And Elizabeth needed to be able to appeal to authority in that sense and to have that kind of argument that said, I'm not so strange. Sure, I'm a woman on the throne. Sure, I'm not married. But we have this precedence, this ancient goddess, Diana, Artemis in ancient Greece, who was a revered figure who did not marry and who still commanded respect. And so all of that got really heavily woven into A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, you know, it's tempting to take one character out of Midsummer Night's Dream, like Titania, and say, oh, that's it. That's where he's evoking Queen Elizabeth. But I think the reality is that he was much more savvy than that. And why just put one character that can flatter Elizabeth when you can have two or more? And so Hippolyta is another example of one of those characters, a female leader of the Amazons, and she does marry, but it's to Theseus who has conquered her in battle. And it's not clear that she's particularly happy about it. So I feel like, you know, mixed in with this flattery is also this sort of kind of support for Elizabeth's choices, right? She could have married like Hippolyta did, but nobody wanted her to marry somebody who had conquered her in battle. That's not what the English wanted at all. And although Titania is very much her own person, she in many ways is the highest status character in the play. Oberon is really clearly her consort in a lot of ways. And still he's sort of providing some gentle support because he's saying even the most powerful of women might have an ill-considered love affair from time to time, and <laughs> we shouldn't necessarily assume that that made her incompetent. She just had sort of a, you know, a fling. She may even have been enchanted. It probably wasn't even her fault. And so I really love the way that Shakespeare uses these mythologies and lore to both exalt Elizabeth and support her and yet still poke a little bit of fun at her at the same time. I don't think anybody's ever done it better than Shakespeare did. 
In Shakespeare's King John, the character Hubert de Burgh reports to the king that, quote, five moons were seen tonight, four fixed, and the fifth did whirl about, the other four in wondrous motion, end quote. That comes from Act 4, Scene 2. Rachel, what exactly is going on with the moon here? How is it possible to see five moons in one night? Well, it isn't, Cassidy. <laughs> well, that's good, because I thought I was really missing something. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, this question did send me to my research, which is always fun. I love uh, looking stuff like this up. And basically, he got it from Hollingshed, and who got it from somebody named Roger of Wendover, who wrote The Flowers of History back in the 1200s. Roger of Wendover's Flower of History that he wrote in 1235 talks about something that somebody told him happened in the year 1200. And this would have been, he says, a little before Christmas, but he says, of the appearance of five moons, in this same month, a little before Christmas, about the first watch of the night, five moons appeared in the heavens. The first appeared in the north, the second in the south, the third in the west, and the fourth in the east. The fifth appeared in the middle of the first four with several stars round it, and this last one with its accompanying stars. So we don't know. You know, odds are somebody made it up. It's one of those things that Shakespeare got from Hollingshed, who got from this guy, and who knows who this guy heard it from. <laughs> In several of Shakespeare's plays, we see characters keeping track of time based on how many moons have gone by. I think of Othello when he references, quote, nine moons wasted in Act 1, Scene 2, or how in Pericles, Act 2, Scene 5, the character Simonetti says that for 12 moons more is how long his daughter will wear Diana's livery. Rachel, we know that implements like sundials and calendars existed for Shakespeare's lifetime. So why are these characters marking time by the moon? Because it was another word for month. So... You know, you can't look at a sundial to see what month it is. And calendars weren't necessarily a common thing. And you might even have people who didn't necessarily agree exactly what day it was. But you could look up into the sky and see what phase the moon was in. And so this was really a, a very reliable way of keeping track of months. You could go, okay, well... Let's see, we just had the harvest moon, we're coming up on a wolf moon, and then there'll be a cold moon. So people tended to think in very lunar ways of measuring time. A reference to the word moon in some form, either directly or in words like moonshine and moonbeam, come up an astonishing 38 times in Shakespeare's play, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Rachel points out that the presence of the moon was much more tangible in a society that did not have electric lighting. Rachel, why was the moon and its light in particular so important for Shakespeare's lifetime? Were people using the moon functionally in their daily lives, aside from telling time? Right. <laughs> they absolutely were, because you could go out, say, on a full moon, or even if it was a, a bright half moon and there weren't any clouds, you could go out, you could even do crops and things like that. You could go picking herbs. You could certainly find your way to your lover's house. 
you could go to the tavern and drink and go home and hopefully not be you know, jumped on by footpads because there would have been enough light to see their face. So the moon's light was hugely important. And, you know, not only the humans responded to the moon's light, but the animals did too. So there would be this sort of frenzy of hunting during the full moon at night, certainly among the animals. And then, of course, the humans would want to go out and catch the animals that were out in the full moon. And so it was um, almost like another kind of daytime when the moon was full. Now, when the moon was dark, then everybody just wanted to stay home because you couldn't see anything. Or if it was, you know, too covered over with clouds and things like that, then there were a whole bunch of activities that you wouldn't necessarily feel as safe doing. Rachel writes that the moon was held responsible for the bad or difficult things in the world like aging, weather, and even the shifting of emotions. She says, quote, the effort to become a better person was in part the effort to overcome the effects of the moon, end quote. Rachel, what kind of practical things were attributed to the influence of the moon and exactly how much science was behind these theories? I mean, we know the moon really is responsible for the ocean tides, for example, but are there other real life things that can be similarly attributed to the moon? as well? Well, this is one of the things that I found out in doing the research for this book in particular that I thought was really fascinating, which is that, you know, in the early modern world and before, everybody leaned very heavily on Aristotle for the way things were structured, for how medicine worked, for how the universe worked. And the Aristotelian view of the cosmos was that there was something called the sublunary sphere. And what that meant was that everything that was beyond our moon's orbit was fixed. It didn't change. It was this sort of eternal order. And, you know, we need to remember that they thought this was a geocentric system. They thought that all these spheres orbited around the Earth because the Earth is clearly the most important thing in the universe because we're on it, right? So obviously, it must be the most important. And so what they believed was that everything that happened between us and the moon was part of that sublunary sphere. And once you were on this side of the moon, then Everything was allowed to change and the four elements started to work. In other words, be, you know, we talk about the four elements, air, fire, earth, water, and those were also said to affect the humors, which affected the body, everything in this very visceral kind of way. So once you got past the moon, everything was perfect. And so all of your troubles, came from the fact that we were on this side of the moon and we were subject to aging, we changed our minds, all kinds of things like that happened. And so the quest for perfection was to sort of evolve, move on past the lunar influence into that sphere where everything was unchanging and perfect. Now, this sounds wacky, 
to us <laughs> to a certain degree, except that, of course, it is true that we age and all of that. But if we think about the Earth's atmosphere and how everything that lives, which means everything that changes, has to stay inside the Earth's atmosphere or bring its own if it leaves, then this way of looking at the Earth isn't that far-fetched, really. It's just a question of where the dividing line, because our atmosphere doesn't make it all the way out to the moon. But certainly, the moon doesn't influence anything else that we can see. For instance, if the moon had had a little satellite, then they might have come up with a whole different theory. But because it's just us and the moon and the sun, they were able to create this very kind of binary idea of the way that the cosmos worked. And now you're mentioning the, the sub-lunary sphere, and we're, we're pointing out that there's an association between the word moon and lunar, obviously. But I wonder if there was an association between the moon and the concept of lunacy for Shakespeare's lifetime, especially considering that in A Midsummer Night's Dream, there's a constant presence of both the moon and madness as if they go together. Was this an intentional cultural reference that Shakespeare's using? Yes. And really an unavoidable one. It was really assumed that the moon did cause madness. And, you know, as I was just discussing about how the moon affects everything emotionally, they really believed that the moon controlled these emotions. Now, when I say they believed, you know, let's be clear that each individual had their own beliefs, I'm sure, just like we do now. But there was a prevalent sort of mindset that the moon affected the emotions very strongly. And when we understand that light affects emotions, then we can see that there's a link that people behave differently when they have a lot of light in the middle of the night than when there's no light in the middle of the night. Now, do people become more emotional, more intense during the full moon? That seems to be the case. It may have been even more the case when the moon was the only source of strong nighttime illumination. But yes, it was assumed that the moon could drive you to madness. Now, there were other ways to be driven mad. You could be driven mad by demons. But nonetheless, it was lunacy. In Antony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus and Midsummer Night's Dream, the term horned moon or horns of the moon gets used. Rachel, what exactly does this phrase mean? Why would the moon have horns? Well, when we look at a crescent moon, we can see that it has horns. And for the Elizabethans, for whatever reason, they were obsessed with cuckoldry. They were really obsessed with what happens when one partner in a monogamous relationship fools around on the side with somebody else. And so the word went through a lot of variations, but eventually it came to mean that a cuckold was the male partner in a monogamous relationship that had been cheated on, and a woman would have been a cuck queen. Now, there was not a lot of fidelity in Elizabethan times. You know, we need to remember that 
people often died in their 30s. And so you have this huge population of people in their, you know, early 20s to early 30s that are most of London. Now, I don't know. I don't know how old you are, Cassidy. I know that when I was in my 20s... I'm going to take it as a compliment that you're looking at me over Zoom and can't tell. I'm going to, I have, I'm going to say that's no, nice. No idea. <laughs> but certainly I in my 20s and a lot of the people that I've known who went through their 20s, uh, fidelity was more of a concept than real a guideline for a lot of us. And so... You know, I'm picturing all these people, you know, running around going, you're cheating on me. Well, you cheated on me. Well, they cheated on them. Well, they, there was a lot of that going on. And so for whatever reason, cuckoldry came to be associated with horns and particularly horns on your head. And so anything that had horns, it could be a bull or a stag or a snail or the moon. If you started talking about something having horns, then you were talking about cuckoldry. Today, one of my favorite concepts of the moon is the idea of a man in the moon. I have two young children and we talk about this at home now. So of course, as we're talking about it and we're looking up at the moon, it does look as if there's a smiling face on the surface of the moon. And it made me wonder, Rachel, for the 16th century, was there a similar idea of a man in the moon for Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, there was sort of a fairy tale. There was lore about it. And it's not clear. Did it come from a song? And obviously, if it came from a song, then it came from somewhere else. But there was this idea that there was a man in the moon and that he had gotten there because he had been gathering sticks in the wrong place or poaching rabbits, doing something wrong that meant that he had to go live in the moon. And sometimes they show him with a little dog, too. So, you know, as Starveling plays the man in the moon and Starveling has a little dog and the lantern and everything else. So these were the things that the man in the moon were said to carry, a bundle of sticks, a lantern, and have a little dog. Well, this may all go back to the myth of Actian. And this goes back to uh, ancient Greece and the moon goddess Artemis, who would run through the forests with her cohort of beautiful young women, none of whom were married. Maybe they weren't all young. Maybe they weren't all beautiful. I shouldn't say that. But anyway, <laughs> I don't think she cared what they looked like, but they were with her. So they must have been magical for sure. And so this hunter comes along with his dogs and Artemis is bathing and he comes along and he sees her bathing. And instead of just creeping away, which would have been the smart thing to do for a mortal man in his situation, basically what he does is say, ha ha, I see you, you're naked and I'm not going to stop looking, neener, neener. And she says, oh my gosh, you are so rude. Go away or I will turn you into a stag. And he says, ha ha, you can't do that. And then she turns him into a stag and his hounds hunt him down and pull him to the ground. And so 
I suspect that this man in the moon, particularly when it's combined with all these other things, the dog may be related to Actian. And when we're reading Midsummer Night's Dream, in a sense, Bottom goes through this experience sort of inside out. Instead of showing up in his normal human guise, you know, he shows up as Bottom and then Puck puts the ass's head on his head. So by the time Titania sees him, he already has an ass's head. She doesn't have to do that to him. And then instead of pushing him away, she welcomes him into her bower. So it's a very farcical treatment of that particular myth. And Shakespeare refers to it several times throughout A Midsummer Night's Dream. I know we would love to explore more about the history of the moon and its place for Shakespeare and certainly the different ways that Shakespeare uses it in A Midsummer Night's Dream. In addition to your book on A Midsummer Night's Dream, what are some of your favorite resources you can recommend we use to learn more? You know, there are so many books, so many really good books. So the tricky thing was kind of limiting it, but I really recommend Medicine and Magic in Elizabethan London, Simon Foreman, Astrologer, Alchemist, and Physician by Lauren Castle. And this book follows this incredible character. He's a diarist. So this is a nonfiction book, and he wrote a lot of stuff down. He was amazing. He didn't do well in grammar school. He didn't go to college. He still managed to learn how to read Hebrew and Latin and ancient Greek and French and German and all these other languages, and then taught himself with some others. I think he had a few mentors. He learned how to do astrology. He called himself a doctor. The physicians were not happy about that at all. He was quite the the ladies' man, as it were, in that often he had to leave town quickly and all his books behind because of outraged husbands who were pursuing him. So Simon Foreman, just an incredible guy. And one of the things that I enjoyed about learning about Simon Foreman is that here we have somebody who clearly learned how to read and write in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, never went to a university, and was being chased out of town and losing his books through, you know, several times. He lost all his books three times. Surely if this guy could manage to do that, I think Shakespeare could have too. And so I, I think that that gives a lot of weight to the idea that Shakespeare could have known those languages, no matter what Ben Johnson said of him, who was kind of a snarky guy anyway. So anyway, there's several books about Simon Foreman, but this particular one does go into the magic and stuff. There's an article in the Journal of the Warburg Institute. And if you don't know about the Warburg Institute listener, it, it's an incredible place where they collect a lot of Shakespeare scholarship and they put out a journal. This was a long time ago, volume two, number three, 1939 by Morris Sondheim, Shakespeare and the Astrology of His Time. And you can find that by going through the journal through the Warburg Institute, or you can go on JSTOR 
And happily now, JSTOR allows you to be an independent researcher and read up to 99 articles a month for free. So we can all enjoy JSTOR now. And last but not least is the occult philosophy of the Elizabethan age. And Francis Yates is the reason that the Warburg Institute was founded or they embraced her early on. It's The details are a little murky to me at this point on a Tuesday morning, but she has a lot of really fantastic books. And this one will go a lot into what I was talking about, Elizabeth being kind of what I was talking about with allusions to moon goddesses when it came to Elizabeth I. And it was called The Cult of Astraea. And uh, Francis Yates wrote a wonderful book about that, too. These are excellent resources for sure. Thank you so much for recommending them. We will place links to these resources as well as Rachel's book in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find links to those. Now, Rachel, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I want you to know that I've been thinking about this for a while, even before your recent episode dropped, and I would take an herbal because I would want to know how to use the plants on the deserted island. I love herbs. I was an herbalist for a long time, and I could be kept very happy by myself on a deserted island looking up all these plants and figuring out which of them would work for mosquito bites. I think that would be an essential. Speaking as someone who loathes mosquitoes, I think that is a very practical choice for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh my gosh, there is so much going on in my fevered brain right now. So I'm currently working on The Twelfth Night or What You Will, Illustrated Handbook and Encyclopedia and This is now 2022, about March. I'm hoping to have it out by the end of the year. I love Twelfth Night so much. It it and Midsummer Night's Dream are probably my two top favorite plays. And it's a very different kind of play, obviously. So it's been a lot of fun to investigate. And I do have a podcast, the Twelfth Night Podcast by Rose City Shakespeare Company, and I have a whole audio production of Twelfth Night recorded there that we did in the before times, and you can hear the whole play at once, or you can hear it broken up into different acts, and then I also have two co-hosts where we discuss each scene and go over it and talk about what it's like to stage it, what we know about the scene. Sometimes we'll do a close reading of the lines. And then there's also episodes where we talk about the dueling code and other fun stuff like that. So that's the Twelfth Night Podcast by Rose City Shakespeare Company. And then I just dropped a new podcast called There Will Be Body or Shakespeare's World and Words. And there's an interview up there now with a wonderful uh, scholar and actor named Dakin Matthews, who explains all about rhetoric. And I just dropped Midsummer Night's Dream audio production that 
we recorded not in person during 2020 and 2021 with actors from all over the world. And I'm super excited to have that done. It took me about a year to edit it. That's amazing. <laughs> These things are a little time intensive. But I will tell you, Cassidy, as you know, you know, you do sound editing, as do I. There's something wonderful about having to listen to Shakespeare's lines over and over in your head instead of my own voice droning on about something. So <laughs> it was a it was a fun project to work on. So that's out there. And if you want to follow me and and all my wild forays into completely different directions of Shakespeare, then you can join the Facebook group, Shakespeare's World and Words, or There Will Be Body. So I think that's about everything, except that, Cassidy, I would love to have you as a guest on my There Will Be Body podcast. Would you come be a guest sometime? Oh, what a wonderful invitation. That's very kind of you. We will be linking to all of these great projects. You have tons of them here. I don't know how you're juggling all that you are, but I'm so glad that you are because I can't wait to listen to some of these podcasts and audio productions. We'll link to them in the show notes for today's episode. Rachel Onstad, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of the moon in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. This has been a fun conversation. It was my pleasure, Cassidy. It's a dream come true. Be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Our show notes for today's episode contain more information on our guests and their research, as well as links to the resources they recommend you use to learn more about today's topic. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 209. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP209. Just like Shakespeare, our show is powered by our patrons. If you enjoy learning about the life of William Shakespeare along with us here each week, then consider becoming a patron. Patrons get access to detailed show notes and bonus episodes. Learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.